0: promised land, Canaan land. We're flirting with it. Last week, the generation that failed to get there failed just within steps of it, just on the edge. When we think of promised land, when we think of Canaan land, traditionally, we think of heaven, and there's really nothing wrong with that. It's a beautiful imagery. We do have an eternal land that's ours. We're citizens of a far kingdom when we really look at promised land in Scripture, it's not an analogy for the sweet by and by. For Israel, it was very much about the here and now. And what one generation failed to achieve, and the other generation that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks did finally achieve, is an illustration for the spiritual life today, in our life, before eternity, that God has planned for us. It's the land of promise. We've tracked the nation of Israel's journey from slavery through the Passover, the redemptive sacrifice of the Lamb, the new life through the Red Sea into life with God, the baby steps as God just simply met their needs as they got their spiritual feet under them, as their faith began to grow. And then the Sinai experience where God gave them the tools they needed to move into maturity with Him. Into maturity, from God just doing things for them to God working through them, which is what He wants for all of us. And the two primary pieces of that Sinai experience are a great analogy for what life is meant to be. We're supposed to live a life for God's glory. That's what the law was about, the life that glorifies God. And then the tabernacle was a life intentional around worship. All of that was to move them to this place of God's ultimate promise, the powerful work of God that's possible only in those that are mature in their faith. The promised land is not a place where it's just milk and honey. (laughs) It's true in our lives. The more we grow in Him, the thing we recognize is that the land of God's promise for believers as we grow has giants in it. There are fortifications that have to be broken through in our hearts, in our lives. Promised land has its battles. In the promised land, we still have disease, we grow old, and we die. But to be there is to be where God wants us. It's where God can work through us in power, where the miraculous occurs in our life, where we experience what Jesus referred to as life that is not just merely life. That's what Paul talks about. Life, as most people live it, is merely life. What a great phrase that is. Who wants merely life? And We can have God life, and we can have what Jesus called life to the fullest. That's what the promised land represents to us. And just like a whole generation fell short of it, there are those of us that go through our whole spiritual experience, and we feel like we've gotten all that we can get. And we don't even realize that all we're doing is drifting through the wilderness, satisfied to let God feed us and give us water, thinking we've gotten all that we're supposed to have. I think of all of us who will stand before God and give account for the life we've lived and look back at what might have been, what could have been, what should have been. That's the promised land. And God calls us into it. But it takes those of us who are willing to go beyond what our own resources call for, what our own experience tells us is possible. To go into the promised land requires us to believe that if we're going to go there, only God's going to get us there. It's the ultimate test of faith for so many to move from God doing things for us to God doing the miraculous through us. And sadly, many people on their spiritual pilgrimage settle for less. God calls us to more. Last week, we saw how and why the first generation that came out of Egypt couldn't get there, too broken. We don't want to be that generation. We want to be the generation that we're about to study. And before God moves them finally into this land of promise, he needs to get them ready. First, he needs to call out new leadership, and that's what we're going to look at today. And then he needs to prepare them, consecrate them. That's what we'll look at next week. We're going to be in the book of Joshua, chapter 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot. As I promised Moses, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you. All the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to your forefathers to give them. Be strong and courageous. Be careful and obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your supplies ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you? The Lord your God is giving you rest and has granted you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men, fully armed, must cross over ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest, as He has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, Whatever you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your words and does not obey your words, whatever you may command will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. You might want to circle as we go through Joshua. Every time you hear that phrase, strong and courageous, it's really the theme of the book. So, here we are. And if we were to just look at it for all of us, uh, there's a lot we can learn from this. But this is teaching about leadership. So, what I'm about to lay out for you is what you should expect of me, of any pastor, any person in spiritual leadership. See, Joshua was one of Moses' right-hand men, maybe the closest. He was also a commander and a leader in his own right, but he did not have the ultimate authority, and with that, he didn't have to stand up under the ultimate accountability. Joshua needs to move from a leader to the leader, from one who by faith obeyed the words of God to one who heard the words and instruction of God. Every spiritual journey requires spiritual leadership, even in the church. It says God gives the church those who will lead it, Ephesians 4. Leadership in the church isn't something voted on by majority vote. God gifts the church. Now, the church has to recognize that somehow, has to affirm it and bless it and commission it. But make no mistake, God calls leadership out. Our job is to recognize it, to hold it accountable. And what we're about to read is what God expects of leaders. So um, these are always the hard sermons to preach as a pastor because what I'm literally doing is telling you what I humbly aspire to be and can't possibly be except for the grace of God. We're going to go through this and and we're going to draw out 13 words about spiritual leadership. And we're going to draw the first one out of the very first verse what does it say? After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua. So the first thing we talk about when we talk about recognizing spiritual leadership is calling. The Lord said to Joshua. It's the first time we hear those words. Prior to that, the Lord says it to Moses, and Moses says it to Joshua. Now Joshua hears the voice of God. Calling is the first word. Godly leaders have heard and responded to God's call. Which means, listen to this, you don't dabble in leadership. You're either called to it or you're not. Because God's going to hold you doubly accountable for that role. Too many people play games in churches. Too many people that were, excuse me, never meant to lead, don't have the gifts for it. doesn't mean they're not gifted to do a lot of other things. Come to a church and say, this is where I can be big boss. And they kill churches because they're dabbling at leadership. You better know God called you. God compelled you. You need to learn to recognize the voice of God when He speaks. Now, that can be the leading of God, but I believe also there are times when when true leadership can really recognize God speaking to them. I believe that, that that happens still today. We're going to learn a little later on that that is tempered by a very important anchoring of how God speaks, and that's the Scriptures. Everything is tested and proven through the Scriptures, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. Godly leaders are sensitive to God's leading and voice. Don't dabble at it. Don't think this is a place to have leadership as a hobby. This is where leadership matters most. This is the people in the kingdom of God. The verse continues, what does God say to him? Get ready to cross the Jordan. Second word is, commence, commence. Godly leadership is always focused on where God is calling us to go, not in preserving status quo, keeping everybody happy and trying to do what everybody wants, but where has God called us and how are we moving there? Godly leadership never takes their focus off of where we're headed. All too often, spiritual communities want someone who somehow know everybody's birthday (laughs) physical needs because what we really want is a spiritual buddy. We think a pastor needs to be everybody's spiritual physician, and there's a place for that, but that's not the primary calling. The primary calling is to see beyond and to stretch people and push them forward. Godly leadership is focused on where God is calling us to go, committed to being personally ready for it, and committing to getting God's people ready for it. Get ready to cross the Jordan. It's a visional task. Finish that verse with this phrase, you and all these people. The Lord said to Joshua, get ready to cross the Jordan, you and all these people. The third word is community. Pretty soon you're going to be offering your own C words as we get going here. You'll figure out the game. The third word is community. Godly leadership is not a scout. Yeah, godly leadership is always thinking forward, but they're not the trailblazers who go out there on their own while the congregation lags behind. That's not where godly leadership is. Godly leadership recognizes their role to be with the people and move together forward. We do these things in community. Another uh, part of verse 2. You and all these people into the land I am about to give you. What I hear when I hear that part of verse 2, is conviction. Godly leader is firm in his belief of the vision and provision of God. The key here is not into the land. They know that. They know God's called them to the land. That's, That's been the big thing, right? The big part of this statement is it's the land I am about to give you. And so, conviction recognizes that God is going to provide. So, godly leadership is firm in our belief of the vision and also the provision of God. If God calls us to it, God's going to provide. He never calls us someplace that He's not going to make possible. It may take the miraculous, but we step forward trusting Him. We'll look more at that next week. Let's move on to verse 3. I will give you every place you set your foot. Fifth word claim. You see, godly leadership isn't satisfied just to talk about what could be. They recognize that when God calls us and says, I'm going to do this through you, we have to actually go and get it. God gives it to us, but he gives us where we put our feet. It's yours when you get there. That's why the previous generation didn't get the land. They looked at it from afar, but they didn't go get it. Now, this is not name it and claim it religion. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about believing God's call in our life and stepping forward in obedience, knowing that if he promises he's given to us, we're going to find that he has when we get there, claiming that in his name. We got five words. Verse 5, what else does he say? No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. Does the C word come to mind for you there? Confidence. Confidence. Very good. There's two things. A godly leader expects opposition. There will be those who will stand against you. But he also expects divine success and protection in spite of that opposition. I love what we focused on today in our worship. If God is for us, who can stand against us? Doesn't mean people won't try to stand against us. But if God is for us, no one can stand against us. I have that confidence. Why do I have that confidence? The rest of the verse. I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Word that comes to my mind is companion. Companion. Godly leaders trust and know that when God calls us, He always goes with us. It's His presence that gives us confidence. God's going to give us the land because we're in it with Him. Do you remember the last scene of the previous generation that we looked at in Numbers? We just alluded to it a little bit last week. Uh, After they said, no, we're not going to go in, we'd rather die out here instead of suffer by a sword, and God said, okay, if that's what you want, that's what you get. You'll die out here, I'll I'll give you what you asked for. And then after God judges them, what did they do? Anybody remember? They said, oh, okay, we get it now, we'll go and try to take the land, And Moses said, it's too late. God isn't going to go with you. What they should have done was fallen on their faces in confession and repentance. We don't really know what God would have done with a truly contrite heart. Now they were just going to go and claim it in their ability in spite of what God said. And they failed miserably. You see, it's the companion, the friend that is closer than a brother, the God that goes with us. It's the fourth man in the fire. It's the God who is present as we live in obedience to him. That gives us confidence as we go forward. Now we come to verse 6. And we have this phrase that is really the theme of the whole whole story of Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Does a C word come to mind here? Yeah. Courage. Courage. Courage, a godly leader, is not ruled by fear. Let me describe what courage is. Sometimes we think that the presence of fear equates to the absence of courage. Actually, it's just the opposite. Fear is not the opposite of courage. Unbelief is. Courage is stepping forward in spite of our fears because we know God's with us. It takes courage to be a godly leader to stand up and be confident enough in what God said to you to say, thus saith the Lord. It takes confidence to hold that firmly as others say, we can't instead of we can, as we learned last week. It takes a lot of courage to be that person, and then it takes courage to be the first one to step forward. A true godly leader will do that be strong and courageous. Let's just look at that phrase a little bit before we move on. God says it to, um, to Joshua three times. It's pretty interesting. It's as though God really knows Joshua's heart. Here's the man who has fought all the battles. He's the one that at the end of, of Numbers said, we can do this. God has already given in us. Their, their protection is gone. It's ours for the taking. Why does Joshua need to be strong and courageous? He is strong and courageous. No, three times be strong and courageous because wielding a sword is a very different thing than wielding wisdom, than wielding authority, than wielding leadership. That's a fearful thing. And we will be judged, those of us in leadership. We'll be judged for how we teach God's Word, how rightly we handle it, for whether we spoke in our name and put God's name on it. And don't you believe that there are many who will stand in judgment for that? Charlatans, false shepherds, Wolves in sheep's clothing over the church. I think Joshua needed courage for this role, it required a whole new set of tools for him. It's interesting, where else do we see that phrase? Three times God says it to Joshua, one's the fourth time. Who says it? The people say it. And who do they say it to? Joshua. My feeling is this becomes their war cry, because in chapter 10, Joshua comes back to it at a pivotal battle. Be strong and courageous. I think this was, this was the cry of that generation, because they knew it was the failure of the previous generation. They let fear rule them. We are going to be strong and courageous. That was the message God gave Joshua. He gave it to the people, and in turn, they gave it back to him. I love that thought. Something very interesting, if you go back through Moses' final uh, teaching to the children of Israel just before he departs, many times he says to the children of Israel, encourage Joshua, encourage Joshua, your leadership needs to hear from you to be strong and courageous. Even as they're calling God out of you, you call God out from them. But let's go on. The next three words all have to do with a godly leader's relationship to the Word of God. Let's look at verse 7 be strong and courageous, be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful." So, let's break this up into three separate ideas, all related to the Word of God. What was the first phrase? Be careful to obey all the law. Now, what's what's he referring to? What do the Jewish people mean by the law? Just the Decalogue or the Levitical law? No, they mean the words of Moses. They mean the Torah. And right now, the Torah is the only Scripture that the children of Israel have. When you hear God say to Joshua, be careful to obey all of the law, he's saying that godly leaders need to have a very important relationship with the Word of God. First of all, godly leaders need to know the Word. If you're going to obey it all, you need to know it. And secondly, our lives need to be consistent with it. I, I know there's grace, I know that even leaders fail morally. But there's a whole movement in the Christian world that talks about the anointing of God, and because they have the anointing, we let them get away with hell. Oh, they have the anointing of God. No. If they had the anointing of God, they would live in the holiness of God. Their lives would match their message. We're all imperfect. We all fail. We all fall short. We all need grace. But I'm not qualified for this job if you don't see God at work in me and you see that my life is tracking with the word of God. Leadership knows God's word and lines their life up according to it. They never say, do as I say not as I do. They say, you follow me because I'm following Christ. That's the Apostle Paul. And because of that the next C word is compliance. Compliance to the word of God. The next one is commitment. The verse goes on and says, Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Godly leaders are committed to rightly dividing Scripture. They don't use Scripture to accomplish some end. They don't find proof texts and wink at what they really mean in order to make them work for the point they want to make. We're first seeking to see what it actually says. What's the context who are the people? What's God saying to them? Because that's what God's saying. Then we say, how does that truth apply to us today? That's so important. We don't deviate from it to the right or left. It's the same image. It's interesting. That's exactly the word that Paul says, rightly dividing the word of of truth. That word is an architect or an engineer's term for cutting a straight path, rightly dividing the word of truth, not deviating from the left to the right. We need to be committed to that. That takes as much courage as anything, because sometimes that means we're going to go through some very uncomfortable territory if we're going to steer a straight line through the Word of God. Uh, We've talked a lot about the fact that, especially in New England, we are in largely a post-Christian United States. We have to bring the authentic faith to that culture. And, And there are two movements within the church that look very much alike in some ways, but they are diametrically opposed. And I want to clearly state where we are in the camp today, because sometimes people see a church that's trying to do ministry and mission in particular and discipleship in ways that impact culture as it is today, and, and they confuse that as theological compromise. The two movements are both trying to be relevant, but one of them, by trying to redefine Scripture, making it kinder and gentler, <laughs> and thereby being able to redefine classic phrases, a new kind of Christian, new kind of church. I'm not interested in a new kind of Christian. I want an authentic Christian. Yeah, my goal is to get rid of everything that may get in the way of authentic faith, but ultimately authentic faith has to come from an authentic experience and commitment to Scripture. And if we're committed to rightly handling Scripture what's going to happen is we're going to see where things may have worked in a generation ago, but no longer work now in this context. We're going to get down to the core of it, the real truth, and that's going to redefine us. We're going to have real Christianity, not new kind of Christianity. See, to me, the new kind of Christian is the old kind of liberal. Two generations, three generations ago, the mainline churches began taking a lighter view of the gospel, a lighter view of sin, came up with a friendlier version that led them down a path where they are today, and many of them dying because if all you offer is living a life based on how Jesus lived his life without the transforming work of the gospel, frankly, there's a lot easier ways to be happy on earth and live the way Jesus lived. The faith is nothing without the gospel, without the cross. Recently, I've been working through a 40-day journey with the writings of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and I want to read for you what he wrote. Now, Bonhoeffer wrote out of Nazi Germany. He eventually died as a martyr in Germany for his faith. Brilliant mind, uh, but he was writing in a day and age when mainline churches, of which he was a part, were looking for a new, fresh, friendlier journey that emphasized grace without emphasizing sin. And uh, it was interesting how I was preparing this morning, and uh, this is day 17 of that journey, and this is what he wrote generation ago about those that were trying to soften the blow of the Word of God back then. Cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. Our struggle today is for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace as bargain basement goods, cut-rate forgiveness, cut-rate comfort, cut-rate sacraments. Grace is the church's inexhaustible pantry from which it is doled out by careless hands without hesitation or limit. It is grace without a price, without cost. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, as principle, as system. It means forgiveness of sins as a general truth. It means God's love as merely a Christian idea of God. The church that teaches this doctrine of grace... Thereby conveys such grace upon itself. The world finds in this church a cheap cover-up for its sins, for which it shows no remorse, and from which it has even less desire to be free. Cheap grace is thus denial of God's living word, denial of the incarnation of the word of God. Cheap grace means justification of sin, but not the sinner. Because grace alone does everything. Everything can stay in its old ways. Our action is in vain. The world remains world, and we remain sinners, even in the best of lives. Thus, the Christian should live the same way the world does. In all things, the Christian should go along with the world and not venture to live a different life under grace from that under sin. Cheap grace is that which we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. It is baptism without the discipline of community. It is the Lord's Supper without the confession of sin. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. Today more than ever, we need people who are committed to bringing Christ to a new generation, to a post-Christian world, but bringing the authentic Christ. And to do that, we need to not steer to the left or the right of God's Word. God's Word needs to be God's Word. It takes courage to hold that sometimes. Sometimes it takes courage to tell your parents that how they saw it for generations is not necessarily what it really says. We're not talking about maintaining the status quo. We're talking about mining out the truth of God's Word. And I hope you see that that's really what we're about here as best as we can. I got off on that, didn't I? Can you tell how important that is to me? Uh, There are rumors going around that Tom Sparling has emergent tendencies. Woo! No, I'm just at a point where I don't care if people that have been doing church the same way for 100 years and think that their program is divinely inspired. I don't care what they think any more than how those trying to find a more radically universalistic church think what I care about is what God thinks. And sometimes that means saying the way I thought about it for years is wrong. Here's how I see Scripture. And sometimes saying as painful as it sounds, the way you want to believe it is wrong because here's what it says in Scripture. That's who we're going to be. And I think that's what God calls spiritual leadership to do, He goes on and says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. That's communion. Godly leaders live in the book. They don't just study it. Scripture is the script of their life. They are intimate with God through his word. And I think this is really important that you understand this. A real leader doesn't go to a mountain with his Bible closed and say, God, speak to me apart from it. A real leader opens God's word and says, let me hear your voice today here because this is your living word for me today. It's the word of God that is the voice of God for us today. So we need to meditate on it. It's literally communion with our Father, his word alive and speaking to us. Just quickly, let me hit the final two. And then he says, then you will be prosperous and successful. That C is conquest. Conquest. That's the result of godly leadership. If we're faithful to these things that God calls us to do, in some way we're going to see God bless. He's going to work. And we need to be careful here because God sees the words prosperity and success in a very different way than we see it. Not necessarily health and wealth. Filling a former Colosseum with people is not necessarily God's blessing if the message isn't about sin and repentance and grace. My dad had a dear friend. My dad pastored churches that always grew So, from a lot of his classmates. My dad was the more, one of the more successful alumni of his Bible college. My dad most revered a man by the name of Gordon Olson who served with his family for more than 20 years ministering to Muslims. And in 20 years, they saw two people come to faith. That was a hard ministry. But my dad believed that he saw God prosper and bless that man because of his faithfulness as a godly leader. And then finally, they answered, whatever you command us, we will do. So now, this is not about the leader. Now, this is the followers. And that final word is choice. Ultimately, a leader cannot make the choice for the people. Moses couldn't make the choice for the previous generation to enter the promised land. They had to make their own choice, and they failed. So no matter how great your leadership is, Ultimately, we must choose together to follow God. That's why a lot of pastors joke that being a pastor is sort of like trying to herd cats. We have to choose together. Whatever you send us, we'll go. We will obey. Contrast that with the parents' generation and ask yourself, which generation do we want to be? We'll pick this up next week when we look at how the generation responded to this. God is always calling out new leadership. And that's true in this group. There are those of you that God has called. He's preparing. Be listening for it. Have the courage to respond to it. Our job is to look for that as a community, to affirm it, to, to, to inflame it. Uh, and that for us boomers, that means that we have to recognize that we have to move aside from some of our seats and let our young adults step in and take on their leadership roles. We were leading our churches in our 30s many of us. Now we're in our 50s and 60s, we're still leading our churches. We need to see that God calls out new leadership as well. We need to encourage it from the top down. Call the congregation to encourage and bless them as well. We'll pick it up next week. I just want to say thanks for letting me go here with you today. And pray for me. Pray for our board. Pray for others who bring the word in this community and who lead Pray that we will aspire to being that kind of man and woman called by God. Pray for us. Encourage us. Hold us accountable. Let's pray together. Father, we, we hear your words to Joshua and understand why you said to him, be strong and courageous because when you call us out, it requires obedience to you, submission, it requires courage, it requires devotion to your Word. Father, I pray that I would be that much of a follower of you as I stand here and and have the joy of being one who leads uh, this congregation. And I pray that you'll call out young men and women and older men and women uh, into new ways of influencing and leading others. And I pray that all of us will do our part and say we will obey. We will make the choice to go with God and with you into the land of promise. In Jesus' name, amen.